Thank you, Sam. Please, we're already standing for the reading of the word. <laughs> In the land of Oz, there was a man, lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys. And had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spared or spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well, then everything he has is in your power. But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incite me against him, to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied, a man will give all he has for his own life. But now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well, then he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be, be to, to God. God. John Wesley said, the way we should greet one another is, how is it with your soul? What a great question. What a great question. Music just brings us into the presence of the Lord in such a wonderful way, doesn't it? Just amazing to me. We read in Job, a fascinating book of the Bible, the oldest book in the Bible, 
uh, Bible scholars believe it is the oldest. It's written in, a, in a, an ancient, ancient form of Hebrew that even the rest of the Old Testament is not written in. So they believe it to be the very oldest book in the Bible. And I think it's significant that it's the oldest book in the Bible dealing with really probably the oldest question in mankind, question that's been throughout history for man, the question why. Why do bad things happen to good people? One of my favorite authors, Philip Yancey, wrote a book uh, titled, uh, The Question That Never Goes Away, Why? So we see Satan coming to speak to the Lord. And the Lord says, there is no one on earth like him. Speaking about Job, no one on earth like Job. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. That's how God sees Job. Satan wants to test him. Wants to test him. So he takes this, this man who has all this property, this wealth, and he causes him to lose it all. And then he even causes the death of his ten children. Job is devastated. He's devastated. But what does he do? Job got up, tore his robe, shaved his head, and he fell to the ground in worship. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Satan comes again, and we know what he does this time. He comes and he afflicts him, sores from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. He is in misery. But what does he do? He said, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. And he didn't. But for the next 35 chapters in the book of Job... Job wants to know why. He asks that question. In fact, he gets pretty forceful. He gets kind of demanding. He gets angry. He wants to know why. Why has this happened? You know, I will tell you probably the most difficult question a pastor can ever answer is the question why. Why do bad things happen to good people? When people come asking that question, how do you answer it without causing more pain and anguish? How do you bring comfort and peace to those who are angry and hurt, who maybe are already doubting God? For those who maybe don't know God at all, how do you answer that question? How do you answer it truthfully? I want to share some things with you this morning of things I've learned about that question. Let me tell you about a couple old friends of mine. You know, God is so good to place people in our lives that have an impact. We learn from these guys. Years ago, I worked with a guy named Rudy. 
Rudy was an interesting guy. Rudy was a World War II veteran. He had been drafted into the German army and sent to the Russian front. On the Russian front, Rudy lost an eye and a finger. Rudy came back from the Russian front. He was bitter. He was angry. I knew him 25 years after the end of World War II, and he was still angry. He was still bitter. Rudy was miserable. He couldn't understand why his country had drafted him into the army, why in the world they sent him to, to the Russian front. He was mad at them. He was mad at the Russians for shooting him up. Rudy, it was so interesting. You'd see him in the morning. He'd be coming to work. Rudy, how you doing, man? Miserable. Everything's miserable. It's always miserable. That's what he'd say. Every morning, Rudy would say that. When Rudy was working, his head was down, and he'd mumble to himself, and you could hear it. He'd be saying, miserable. It's always miserable. And he would do that while he worked. Years later, I worked with another guy, Ernie. Loved old Ernie. Ernie was an old farm kid from Jennings County. World War II started. Ernie joined the Army, and they sent him to Europe to fight. Over there, Ernie got wounded, and they amputated his left hand. So Ernie comes back from the war, and Ernie does what Ernie has always done. He goes back to farming. He's got a hook and one hand, and he can do anything he ever did farming, and he was successful at it. His farm was growing and all that until he got his right hand caught in a picker, and they amputated his right hand. What did Ernie do? <laughs> he went back to farming with two hooks, and he continued to be successful. Ernie eventually became county commissioner. Became a county commissioner and, uh, and then eventually became vice president of sales and marketing for a, a, a civil engineering company. Amazing guy. Two guys, and really all they shared was suffering. So what have I learned about the question why when life seems to be so unfair? First, let me say this to you. If you've ever asked the question why, if you ever are going to ask the question why, and you may, don't beat yourself up for asking it. It's not unusual to question things when things don't work the way they're supposed to. We're not the only ones who've ever gone to God and asked why. Job wanted to know why. All these things were happening to him, a righteous man who suffered. In fact, Job's angry at some point. He's angry when he asks why. Job said, though I cry violence, I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no justice. He's mad, and he's a righteous man. Gideon, speaking to an angel, once said, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about? Gideon, ask why. David himself, when he was rejected by his friends, cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
we know that God never fails. And I believe he understands when in despair we ask that question. We're in, we're in good company when that happens. Secondly, we know that even when we sin, God still loves us, doesn't he? Bad things can happen. He still loves us. We can be assured when bad things happen, it's not punishment from God. It isn't. Now, there's some consequences that are built into sin that can happen. But this is not punishment from God. As Job was suffering and wanting to know why, his friends all told him that it was punishment for his sins. When Job argued that he was a righteous man, and so did God. In fact, God himself described Job to Satan, there's no one on earth like him. He's blameless. He's upright. So then Job's friends tell him, okay, well, it's not punishment for your sins. It must be punishment for your children's sins. But in God's response to Job, when he answers Job, he never says that he's being punished for sin. Nowhere in the New Testament, in fact, do we find God punishing people for their sins. We don't see it in the New Testament. In fact, Jesus, he addresses it in John chapter 9, where we have an encounter between Jesus, his disciples, and a man who was born blind from birth. The disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered the question, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. The man was not blind because he sinned. And we must not tell people. We must not tell people that. Because God doesn't work that way. Think about it. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus goes into a Samaritan village, and they didn't want him there. They didn't want Jesus in their village. James and John says, Lord, you want us to rain down fire on them? He says, no. No. Jesus doesn't do that. You know, Back a number of years ago, Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans. You remember that? It was a disaster. Pat Robertson said it was punishment for legalized abortion. God did it. He quoted the Old Testament about punishment for shedding innocent blood. But how can that be true when Katrina devastated the whole city? It devastated the whole city, including people who were against legalized abortion. You see, diseases, accidents, natural disasters, problems in this world are just realities. They happen to both good and bad people. And if New Orleans was being punished for abortion, then why did Chuck Colson say Katrina hit because it was a warning about terrorism. And then why did John Hagee come up with a totally different reason 
why God would send a hurricane against New Orleans. Katrina wasn't a punishment for sin, but so that the works of God could be displayed. How were they displayed? Who responded first? You know who responded first? Churches. Churches sent teams to New Orleans to rebuild the city, to rebuild homes for people. And you know who was there when everybody else left? Churches. <laughs> Churches were still there building homes and rebuilding that city. Life is unfair, but God is always good. We also know that in life we face challenges, that life includes pain and suffering, and while that is inevitable, how we respond is optional. Think of Rudy and Ernie, the difference in how they responded to the challenges of life. They each chose their response. They shared that suffering, didn't they? They didn't deserve that. They chose their response. Rudy chose anger and self-pity and misery, and Ernie just cruised through life. He had too much to do to look back. Ernie saw life as a glass half full. He was without his hands, but he was alive. He was challenged but undefeated. Ernie saw all the possibilities of life and simply had too much to do to be anything but optimistic. And I will tell you, Ernie's faith in the Lord grew every single day. You know, I read about two small boys. They were twins who had experienced a really terrible upbringing. They had a, an abusive mom. They had an alcoholic dad who was a thief in and out of jail throughout their lives. They lived in poverty and squalor, and they were exposed to really all the dark sides of life. One day, one of the boys, rather, grew up to be a criminal, just constantly in trouble with the law. He never broke free from his past. The other boy became a surgeon. And in spite of this abusive background that he had and all the problems that went with it, this boy studied hard. He was determined to do something worthwhile with his life. And so the boys were questioned. They were each asked the same question, separated. They were asked why they had chosen their particular pathways. And while each didn't know what the other's answer were, they answered like twins do. Both of them said, with a background like, with a background like mine, what would you expect? And yet look at the difference. Same answer, such a different life. Story makes the point, the ability to choose our response to the circumstances of life, that's free will. And free will, I think, is one of the greatest gifts that God has ever given us. Apostle Paul knew what suffering was. He'd been beaten, flogged, stoned, shipwrecked, snake bit, imprisoned, betrayed, 
He'd seen it all. But old Paul told the Corinthians, we're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Paul had learned the secret how to respond to suffering. Paul wrote to the Philippians, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Paul knew that in tough times and tough situations, his strength, his power, his purpose came from his faith in Jesus Christ. To give up would have been the natural thing to do. To press on without losing his hope, his faith, his meaning, and purpose, that was supernatural. The choice is ours, but the source is God. C.S. Lewis, we all love C.S. Lewis. He was asked, why do the righteous suffer? Good question. Old Lewis said, why not? They're the only ones who can take it. <laughs> yeah. So with the question why, we have just really one more thing to consider. How do we respond to someone who is suffering and asking why? How do we do that? Well, first, we have to understand their grief, and we've got to grieve with them. Jesus showed us how to do that when his friend Lazarus died. And his sisters, Mary and Martha, were grieving. And we read in John chapter 11, verse 33, when Jesus saw her, Mary, weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Jesus wasn't weeping because his friend Lazarus was dead. He knew in just a few moments Lazarus was going to be resurrected. Jesus was grieving with Mary. He was allowing her to grieve. And that's what we must do. You know, I've been in situations, and you have too, with people who are grieving a great loss. And I've learned in, in that situation, the best thing we can do is just grieve with them. And you know, sometimes if you say 25 words, you've said too much. We'll answer their question, but we have to answer it at the right time, really when they're ready. And often when people are troubled and grieving and asking why, they're just exhausted. They've been on a vigil maybe without rest, without food. In the Old Testament, in the time of the kings of Israel, the evil queen Jezebel had sworn to kill the prophet Elijah. And Elijah was afraid, and he ran for his life. Elijah ran until he was exhausted. 
And not only was he exhausted, he was sure that he was the last faithful prophet, the only one who was a, the remaining faithful believer in God. He was all alone, and he was exhausted. But God knew that at that moment, what Elijah needed was rest and food. And so he had an angel come and, and wake Elijah up, and food was prepared for him. And so he ate, and then, and then he slept again. And he did all that before the Lord spoke to him. And then God answered Elijah. Answering a grieving person's question, why is important, but it's got to be at the right time, doesn't it? I want you to stand with me if you would. You know, this is the last sermon in the series of the question, who are you? And that is the question, isn't it? Who are you? Are you one that questions God when bad things happen, when you suffer? And, and you have, and you will again. You will suffer again. Who are you? Are you the one that asks why? Or are you one that uses that moment, uses that pain, to bring glory to God? That's the question, isn't it? We can't do it under our own strength, can we? No. No, we don't do that. It comes from God. Our worship team's going to come now, and we're going to close with one more song. One more song, and, and you know, one of the most interesting men I think I've ever read about was a guy named Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl was a Jew living in Vienna in 1942. And Frankl and his wife and his parents were taken by the Nazis to a concentration camp. And in fact, over the next two and a half years, Viktor Frankl has moved to four different concentration camps. And in those concentration camps, he saw and experienced the most horrifying, inhuman experiences. And he not only saw them, they were directed at him. From his experiences, Viktor Frankl wrote a book, Man's Search for Meaning. And from his experiences, he came away with this one truth. He said, the one thing you can't take away from me is the way I choose to respond to what you do to me. The last of one's freedoms is to choose one's attitude in any given circumstance. You know, in the right time and place, we can share with people who are hurting and questioning God. We can share God's word. We can share God's plan. We can share his hope for them so that one day,
they may choose to sing. Every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. And when the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, blessed is the name of the Lord.